tonight, how do you respond to hard times? Uh, how faithful are you when the going gets very difficult? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever rejoiced when something really bad has happened to you? We're going to see all of these come true in the Acts of the Apostles tonight as we read our text. Read with me starting at verse number 34 of Acts 5. The Bible says, they stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, the doctor of the law, and had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostle forth a little space. And he said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves, what ye intend to do is touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutius, uh, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you be with the reading of your word tonight. In these few minutes together, would you challenge us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And just reviewing a little bit here, the high priest in verse 17 had risen up and uh, they were filled, the Bible says, with indignation against the apostles for preaching the gospel. Can you imagine anybody who would become angry because sick people were being healed and uh, s demons were being thrown out of possessed people? They were being set free from Satan's hold on their life and that people are getting upset about it. And yet, even among uh, above all that, there's a high priest, the supposed spiritual leader of Israel. And the Bible says they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. They were treated like common criminals. Uh, they were locked up. The religious leaders were bound and determined they were going to put a stop to this new movement and these men. I think what was going on here, par at least partially, is just pure jealousy. I mean, the, they would have loved to have the kind of response that the apostles had. Uh, I think it was probably more the popularity of Christianity than what was really being taught. They hated Jesus, yes. They were threatened. Uh, their way of life was threatened. And uh, this, what really filled their hearts, I believe, was envy, at least partially the reason. They didn't have thousands of people joining them. You could say that uh, the apostles' rallies were a lot bigger than the uh, rallies of the religious leaders, uh, to get a little present-day vernacular in there. Uh, but the apostles had what they wanted, because they wanted men's esteem. The apostles had what the religious leaders wanted. They had men's esteem. But the interesting is, this isn't why the apostles, what they were after. They were just after men's souls. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. And he's talking here about the Pharisees. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And this is what the hypocrites wanted. This is what the Pharisees wanted, the religious leaders. They wanted people to revere them as so spiritual as God's messengers 
They wanted to be seen as God's representative. Really, they wanted to be seen and treated like little gods themselves. It had nothing to do with the well-being of people. It had everything to do with their own self-promotion. Now, this leads to a very frustrating existence. Whenever anybody is living to promote themselves, there is nothing as empty as a self-filled life. Nothing. As, as defeating as a life lived for self. And so they were upset. These Galilean hillbillies came out of the hills and there they were doing what they never would be able, the, the, the disciples were doing what these men would never be able to accomplish. Something has to happen. So the interesting thing is that uh, the apostles, again, as I said, this isn't what they were after. They were just after souls. Verse 19, the Bible says that by divine intervention, they were set free. And then in verses 20 to 21, the angel instructs them to go back and to preach in the temple all the words of this life, he said. The apostles had not been freed by the angel so they could go home or they could run away. They were set free so they could go back to God's work of preaching. And that's exactly what they did. They went back to the temple. And then in verse 25, uh, we talked about last week how they had this little meeting and then one of them had to break in and say that, uh, behold, the men you put in prison are standing teaching the people. Boy, this is egg on their face. They thought the men were in prison. They're talking about what they're going to do with who they have in prison, only they're not in prison anymore. The jailers are still standing outside with their rifles in place and they're guarding the place like they're in there. And But they went to check the place out, and the prison's empty. So they're standing there guarding an empty prison. And this just it's embarrassed them. It was, a, it was a big source of humiliation for them. These ignorant fishermen were doing the things that Jesus had done. They were gaining a large following, and threats and imprisonments just weren't working on them. They couldn't make martyrs of them by killing them, uh, even if they could pull that off, because that would really uh, spread the message that they had. So... Here they are right back in the temple and uh, now they, they, uh, they're back preaching again. And so they go bring them in again. And again, we're just reviewing a little bit what we talked about last week, but uh, they were doing it nicely now. They didn't want to cause a riot. So uh, they brought them back in nicely. And verse 27 through 28, I love the frustration in this question. Did we not command you, you should not teach in this name? Uh, you, <laughs> you guys are... I mean, just think about the fact that all their teeth are gone, though. I mean, we put you in jail. Of course, our jail can't hold you. But uh, we'll put you in another jail that can't hold you. Didn't we tell you not to preach in this name? Verse 29, that verse we all know so well, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. There is a higher court than the Sanhedrin, and that's the court of heaven. And he said, we're going to obey God rather than men. God had sent his son into the world. Then God sent his spirit into the world. Now he sent his servants into the world. And this was, as we spoke about uh, previously, a question of loyalty. Who would the apostles be loyal to? The question is the same for every one of us today. Who in our Christian life are we going to be loyal to, God or mankind? So, Peter's defense here hits home. Uh, the Sanhedrin are angry. They are so angry, in fact, they're talking about killing them. And as we mentioned last week, I don't think it was so much capital punishment as it was they were just so mad they were in killing a killing mood this they knew what was being taught to the people was an end to their influence and their power so the bible says they took counsel they took counsel to kill them the 
Greek word, that word means to be resolved. They deliberated. They reached a decision. They were on the verge of doing to, to the apostles what they had done to Jesus. But then another voice was heard. And that's what we're going to focus tonight, at least in the beginning here, on Gamaliel's counsel. It came from an unlikely source. It was a Pharisee. Uh, one of the Pharisees, now the Pharisees were the minority group here, but it required someone of uh, Gamaliel's reputation to make an impact, and he had a reputation. He was well known. Uh, he was well, uh, very highly respected. Apparently, he was a good enough man, a smart enough man, to know that nothing's going to be accomplished by killing these men. And so he's going to speak, strangely enough, on their behalf. Now, at this point, it's not like he's on their side. He's just uh, giving them some rare common sense here. So, their popularity has already spread well beyond the city of Jerusalem, and he knows that. So now, here, Gamaliel addresses the council, one of the best-known rabbis in the land. In fact, in Acts 22.3, Paul uses it as a booster for his, his uh, talking about how educated he was before he got saved. He was a student of Gamaliel. This was his teacher. It was his mentor. So, he tells the disciples here, or the apostles, uh, in verse uh, 34, he tells them to step out of the room. We're going to talk for a minute. So he asked them for some space and they wanted to talk privately there. Probably Luke heard about the contents of that meeting from a believing member of the Sanhedrin. Could have been Nicodemus, could have been uh, Joseph of Arimathea. But uh, the meeting is recorded for us in the scripture here. Gamaliel was not so much concerned about the apostles as he is about the reputation of of the Sanhedrin. He warns them, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. Again, at this point, he is not speaking out for justice for the men. He is concerned only for their name. He's taking heed to yourself. Look at what might happen to you if you do something to these men. Now, the apostles were growing in popularity. People were joining their cause. Anything that the Sanhedrin did to them could have serious consequences. So then Gamaliel proceeds to give two illustrations from their own history. These were both times that a strong reaction of force was simply not needed. First, he uh, names Thudas here. He revolted with 400 followers and they were all killed. It all came to nothing. As he words he used was it was brought to naught. Now, Josephus, uh, uh, the Jewish historian, tells about a Thudius in A.D. 44 through 46 who attempted to start a prophetic movement. Uh, I don't know if they were the same men. This, uh, that was after this, and so either uh, Josephus made a mistake with the date or there might have been two of them. At any rate, uh, this was not that uncommon, and Thudius was not that of an uncommon name, so uh, it's uh, very possible it was two different people. There were many revolts in the first century, so it would not be that uncommon. And then the second incident he names is, is uh, Judas, a Galilean who revolted, the Bible says, in the days of the taxing. Likely, this was a revolt against Roman taxation. Uh, this also was reported by Josephus, and the movement also came to nothing. This Judas died, and then his movement died with him. The point is, to both of these stories that he's trying to make, is that they had a movement, they had a following, it fizzled. 
because it wasn't real. There was nothing divine about it. And so the movement fizzled out. Now, we still, uh, this happens even today as it did then. Many times when these people come, these false messiahs rise up, uh, their movement comes to nothing uh, because they, especially when they go off the scene themselves, they lose their impact. Uh, you know, the you, you can remember a few years ago the prophet Doe. Remember him? Uh, the weird shaved heads, the ones that drank applesauce, wore Nikes and sweatsuits when they all laid down in their bunker and died. I think it was like 28 of them that died in a suicide pact. Uh, they were, uh, it was when Halley's Comet came through and there were going to be a spaceship behind him to take them all away. And this cult leader, uh, he, he was, he was uh, gaining a following, but when he died, it came to nothing. Now it's just a blip in history. Most people don't even remember his name. And so this is what he understands. By the way, we have many false messiahs in the world right now. Uh, we have Alan John Miller. He's a guy in, in Australia. He claims to be Jesus Christ reincarnated. I saw him interviewed. He talks about how he remembers being crucified. He was a reincarnated Christ. There's a man down in uh, Brazil, Alavar Athis. He claimed, he's claimed for 30 years that he was Jesus Christ. In fact, he started out in his career, in the, in the 60s, late 60s, he claimed that he was the prophet Nostradamus. I guess nobody was impressed, so he says that G God came to him and said, no, you're not Nostradamus, you're actually Jesus Christ. And uh, so he claims to be Jesus Christ. He's carried around by uh, his followers in a velvet chair and, and uh, treated like royalty. Uh, most likely, this is the first time you've ever heard their name, most likely you'll never hear it again because they're not real. Jesus Christ was the real thing. And it took only three years for him to have worldwide renown and eternal ramifications because he was who he said he was. So Gamaliel's advice actually is very wise. Leave this Jesus movement up to God. If God's behind it, you're not going to stop it. If God's not behind it, it'll fizzle out eventually. And this is, a, this is good common sense he had. Jesus has died. Now, they thought that they would let it fizzle out when Jesus died. Only they didn't because that pesky resurrection day that happened, you know, that got in their way. So Jesus rose from the dead. Now, these men, uh, it, it didn't stop when Jesus was crucified. And now, all they want have to do is wait for his followers to scatter. Basically, Gamaliel's litmus test was, is it of human or divine origin? If it's human, it'll fail like all False movements fail. It'll die in and of itself. But look what he says in verse 39 here. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest happily you be found even to fight against God. This is wise counsel. I've always wondered, whatever happened to Gamaliel? There's lots of, there's lots of different takes in history. Uh, he, is, uh, he certainly had wise counsel here. Uh, but Gamaliel had to have seen Paul. Uh, he, this was one of his star students. He had to have heard the testimony of Paul's salvation experience. Both books of Thessalon Thessalon 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, both of those books were written before Gamaliel died. He died in AD 52, I think, and those books were written in 49 and 50. And so he would have been able to probably read those books that were given. Uh, the, in early church history, uh, some make the claim that Gamaliel became a Christian. 
the Clementine literatures, which were written in 100 to 300 A.D., assert that Gamaliel was a silent Christian to help his fellow Christians. Some early manuscripts claim that Gamaliel and his son Simeon were baptized by Peter and John. Now, there is no Jewish textual evidence that says he became a Christian, but then again, if he was a secret Christian like they claim, then they wouldn't have known any way to record it. I don't know. I guess we probably won't know until we get to heaven. But I do know he gave really good counsel here, and they should have listened to it. Perhaps after this, Gamaliel went back to teaching his false doctrine and teaching the, their uh, history as they always had, uh, with all his might teaching that Christianity was wrong. And if he did so, sitting in his class was a young man named Saul of Tarsus, his star student, the one who would one day turn the world upside down for Christ. Now, the text says that Gamaliel's logic persuaded them. Uh, they were convinced. They, the Bible says, and to him they agreed. Rather than executing the apostles, they did three things. They had them flogged. They had the order again uh, to ban them from witnessing in the name of Jesus, and then they let him go. Uh, the, by law, they probably, well, they could have whipped them up to 39 times. Lest you think this was a slap on the wrist, more than one person had died from this type of punishment. So with blood running down their backs, the apostles again were banned from speaking in the name of Jesus. We don't know what kind of whip was used or how many lashes were laid on them, but we can imagine it was a severe punishment. But what's surprising to me is not the punishment so much as the reaction to the punishment. Because they have an amazing reaction here. Their backs and chests are raw, probably blooding, bloody from the beating that they had. So what now? Now that they're released, do they go home to bed uh, full of sorrow? Somebody nursing them back to health while they rethink their life decisions? Not on your life. The Bible says, and they departed from the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now that, more than anything in this entire chapter, perhaps anything in this entire book so far, fills me with amazement, conviction, and aspiration. My, what an attitude. The goal of whipping somebody goes far beyond physical pain. It's supposed to disgrace the person. It's supposed to bring shame on the person. Now, they must have whipped hundreds, if not thousands of people prior to the apostles, but they probably never had this outcome before, where after the whipping, the apostles are rejoicing, high-fiving one another, being grateful to the Lord that they were allowed or to be counted worthy to suffer for His name. What in the wide world are you going to do with a group of men like that? You can't put them in jail because some mysterious way they just vaporize out of jail. You can't give them orders because they don't aren't scared of you. So they don't. The laws you make, they don't. We are going to obey God rather than men. And if you whip them, they rejoice about it. What are you going to do with people like this? But I, I have to think, man. The, the attitude they had that they were counted worthy to suffer. Jesus had suffered for them. Now they suffered for him. You know what happened is they were entered into a fellowship. The Bible talks about this in Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
being made conformable to his death. So they were actually thrilled at the privilege. They looked at persecution as an honor because it put them in the fellowship of his sufferings. There's something special about going through certain things with certain people. I've never been on a battlefield. I've never served in the military. I have a tremendous respect for those that did. But I've, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by military history. So I've read, I read uh, the book's Band of Brothers by, uh, uh, I can't think of the name, guy's name right now who wrote it, but Ambrose, Stephen Ambrose. Tremendous books on World War II about those band of men and uh, how close they were, the ones that survived to their dying day. They were closer to each other than they were to any of their family because they went through a, a time together that nobody understood, but they did. And so you, here you have Jesus, the suffering he did, the apostles, and they entered into a fellowship of suffering. And I, I don't know. I've never been beaten for the cause of Christ. I've never been imprisoned for the cause of Christ. But I imagine that there's some kind of special grace that God gives to people who suffer for his sake. And that's what happened to these men. Uh, they were honored that God deemed them worthy to suffer shame on behalf of Christ. That's a wow statement right there. Now, the people that whipped them were doing it to dishonor them. They took it as an honor. So they were commanded to be silent. Now, let's just look real quickly what the apostles were up against here. And we face the same thing still. Number one, social status. Jesus was of a humble origin. The apostles were just common people. There is no way the high priest and the rulers uh, would, could consent to be taught by them. Excuse me. You have to, we have to understand the mindset that it was a tremendous insult to these great learned men like Gamaliel. And they were so smart and so educated that these hillbilly apostles are running circles around. They just couldn't stand this. And so... We still have this hindrance. People of great social rank, people of great worldly wealth, have you noticed? They don't favor Christianity. The Bible says in Mark 10.25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. That's a strong statement. And knowing that God has nothing against riches. It's not, money is amoral to God. He does not... Not, there's nothing evil with money in and of itself. But the, re, the, 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 the truth is that social status is typically against God. And then legal might. These judges and lawyers who ought to have offend, uh, defended them for their rights sided against them. It was true that Gamaliel spoke for them, but again, it's clear in Scripture he's speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin, what's best for them, not what's best for the apostles. And it's always been this way. Unfortunately, the strong arm of the law, instead of defending truth, often attacks it. The 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals just ordered all schools in Rhea County, Tennessee, to cease and desist because the, there was a group of children who were doing the horrible crime of reading their Bibles in a Bible study. And uh, the religious re freedom from religious people came in and sued, and now the Court of Appeals ordered them they can't read the Bible anymore. Uh, legal powers are not always with Christians, but we still ought to do the right thing and we need to. Mental power. They were dealing with the elite of the intelligentsia of the Jewish nation. They had the best minds 
arrayed against them. And that's still true today. Now, I am not saying that, that, that people anti-God have the best minds. I'm just saying that's what society thinks. Society is convinced that the greatest minds are those anti-Christian. From that time to this, men of brilliant intellects, supposed, have been arrayed against the truth. The arrows that are shot at the cross, even today, have been poisoned, yes, but they are also often very polished. Think of the Atheist Manifesto, book you can buy right now, The Case Against Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, written by Michael Onfray, and he has had many honors bestowed on him. There's the book called The God Delusion, written by Richard Dawkins. He has 12 honorary doctorates from 12 different universities honoring him. We could go on. There's many, many more people that attack God and try to uh, try to uh, eliminate Him from society's thinking. And they are honored by the people in society today. Uh, one of the things we as Christians would love to see is vindication. Wouldn't we see, like to see that sometimes? Oh, we thirst for it. Well, just don't expect it because we'll never get it. We're never going to get a, a, uh, a majority of the society's elite to uh, uh, see, not, not until they get before Christ where it says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. They also had sympathy of numbers. Now many believed, but many did not believe. Truth has always been in the minority as far as numbers are concerned. Christians have always been a minority. If you determine to live a holy life, you will be a minority wherever you go. You will not be the majority at work. Unless you work on staff of a good church somewhere. Uh, but you, you're going to be the minority if you decide to live for God. Uh, you, uh, the fact that they were the minority, though, did not stop them. And it needs not stop us. There's also, a, they faced an establishment. The apostles were the dissenters from an old way. Uh, they were rebels as far as folks were concerned. The Jews felt great disdain for those who dared to oppose their established belief system. That's why there was such a threat to these men. Those who opposed the apostles. They were the ones that revered Abraham and Moses. They looked at Jesus as a heretic. That's why, uh, that's why they got so angry whenever Peter or Stephen preached and talked about Abraham uh, being the uh, linking Abraham and Jesus Christ, they got so angry because they were dealing with well-established opponents there. Now we're still dealing with that today. We still deal with sin, which is as old as the Garden of Eden. Still have a uh, that that we deal with that every day. We also have the old religious errors to deal with. Just do your best, you'll be okay. Works-based salvation been around since the. Bible was written, reincarnation, Eastern religions, all these things that have been around that we are so well established and uh, we have to fight against those things. All of these things were against the disciples, the apostles, and it did not stop them. They continued to preach. God is on the side of truth. Amen? So we present the truth, be faithful in it. The victory that they experience will be a pattern for us as well. Do not let the world get in the way of our duty. You just keep doing right. Be like Peter when he said, we ought to obey God rather than men. We're not going to stop just because somebody tells us to. We're going to obey God. 
proclaim the truth despite all obstacles. So Gamaliel, I, I think you were right. I think your prophecy came true. It is of God, and no one can stop it. They have, you know, they weren't the last. People have tried to stomp out Christianity ever since the day it started, different times. People have tried to uh, stomp it out, but they cannot do it. In fact, I think of, uh, uh, cannot think of his name, um, well-known infidel who said that in, in uh, 50 years, nobody would know the name Jesus anymore. And of course, he's been dead over 100 now. Uh, they have, uh, they did not disobey God's command. They made witnessing their full-time job. Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to preach and teach, or teach and preach Jesus Christ. Says they spoke out daily. They didn't just go to church, but they went from house to house. They ceased not uh, the gospel. They teach and preach, the Bible's talking about there. That's talking about both teaching other believers the tenets of the faith and proclaiming to unbelievers that Jesus is the Messiah. They just, you could not shut them up. They were like somebody who just lost 25 pounds. You can't make them stop talking about it. And that's what they did here. They were excited about what Jesus did for them. Their principle ought to be our directive. We ought to obey God rather than men. Doing God's work has absolute priority over every single human endeavor. It is infinitely better to work for eternal reward than for temporary possessions. Boy, if we could just grab on to that. If we could just grasp, we were talking about it tonight in discipleship. Uh, we're talking about uh, giving. Tonight was our lesson. And how much, how much waste we put in this life uh, instead of giving as we should. God's people are called the light of the world to a world of darkness. People today, they don't any more rejoice in light than people did in that day. The people that are in darkness don't like the folks in light. Darkness hates light. John chapter 3 verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They don't want what we have to offer them. And so often they turn against us. That's the case here in our text. They could not be silenced. They rejoiced in persecution. The Sanhedrin had now lost two rounds against its fight uh, against the church. What a model for churches today. I ask again, like I asked in the beginning, what does it take to stop you? In our, in our world today, praise God, we live in a nation where you're not going to be, you're not going to be thrown in prison for giving somebody a gospel track. You're not going to be uh, fined or jailed for knocking on somebody's door and witnessing to them. Thank God we live in a free country like that. The worst that's ever happened, I had a friend I used to go soul winning with. I wasn't with him this day, thank goodness, but he was out knocking on doors. He knocked on one door and uh, a man answered the door and he said, uh, he, he said, just a moment. And uh, so my friend stood on the porch and waited for him there. I didn't realize, he was wearing a white shirt and tie. And I uh, didn't realize the guy went in he got a big pitcher of red Kool-Aid, opened the door and threw the Kool-Aid all, all over my friend and his friend who were witnessing to them. Uh, we can laugh about that later. You know, it's kind of rude, but doesn't break any bones, didn't leave any marks. Our persecution's not that bad today. So sometimes all it takes for us to be stopped is just somebody snickering at us. Somebody talking about us, looking at us from a distance and talking to somebody else. I mean, it takes nothing anymore for us to be stopped in our tracks for the Lord. 
Let's be faithful. Let's keep on going like these men did. They didn't let anything stop them. And if you do have to suffer a little bit, glory in it. Don't, uh, you know, we shouldn't be to the point that we're uh, weird or crazy and, and delight in it, but we can glory in the fact that, hey, if, if we have to suffer a little bit, Jesus suffered a whole lot for me. I can go through a little discomfort. I can step outside my comfort zone for Him the way these men did. Father, we thank You for the, the uh, text here that we have such a great example of these men. They were actually rejoicing.